0: BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back.
1: Hello, and welcome to the Red Box Podcast with me, Matt Chorley. Now, we covered loads of stuff on the Times radio show this morning. We discussed what is Keirism. What does the Labour leader stand for? I'm not sure we got uh, very far in actually uh, answering that question, but it was a fascinating discussion nonetheless. We talked a lot about Huawei and the government's decision to remove that from the 5G network in the UK. David Aronovich and Daniel Finkelstein were just fascinating talking about all sorts of stuff, not least why family members are not always the best people to write books about politicians. And we had some great advice on how to come up with unhackable passwords. Well, worth listening back to all of that on the Times Radio app or at times.radio. But here on the podcast we thought we'd go with a fascinating conversation I had with Geoffrey Cox, former Attorney General who I've known for many years actually when I was first a reporter on the Western Morning News and I used to call him up for a comment as a backbench Tory MP. His answer phone on his phone used to have Big Ben bonging uh, as he uh, left a message. He would go, bong! Hello, it's Geoffrey Cox here. Bong! Please leave a message. Uh, Anyway, that's a terrible impression of Geoffrey Cox. Loads and loads of people sent him messages saying uh, just how much they enjoyed listening to his voice. Was he Darth Vader? Was he Mufasa from uh, The Lion King, I'll leave you to decide. This is my conversation with Geoffrey Cox. Uh, now then, is the government above the law? And who makes sure, or tries to make sure, that ministers don't end up in court? Well, it's the job of the Attorney-General, which tends to be a low, prof- low profile, low-profile Cabinet job until things get a bit legally contentious, like... I don't know. The government tries to prorogue Parliament for five weeks. And then there becomes a big question. Is the Attorney-General a lawyer who must uphold the law or a politician loyal to the government? Well, one man who knows better than most is Geoffrey Cox, who was Attorney-General for Theresa May and later Boris Johnson before he was sacked earlier this year. Now, he was first elected in 2005 as a Conservative MP in Devon, but he remained almost anonymous, even in Westminster, for 13 years until this happened.
2: Methinks I see her as an eagle, mewing her mighty youth, and kindling her undazzled eyes at the full midday beam. Ladies and gentlemen, let us seize that prize. Thank you.
1: Stirring stuff there from Jeffrey Cox. And Jeffrey Cox joins me now. Good morning.
2: Good morning. Good morning.
1: Oh, that the, the voice—the voice of the, that famous voice uh, for Jeffrey God. Now, Geoffrey, uh, I've known you for almost as long as you've been an MP from my days when I was on the you have. on the Western Morning News. But you were catapulted. You're with... a
2: West Country lad.
1: I am indeed. Matt. You've taken me to one or two and, nice uh, pubs. We're
2: delighted you are <laughs> and have done so well. <laughs> well, uh, that's very
1: kind of you. Uh, flattery will get you everywhere, Jeffrey. Now, you—you were, you were that speech uh, that we were just listening to it was obviously the party conference uh, back in twenty eighteen of you quoting Milton. And having, as I said, you had quite a low profile up until then, how did it feel to suddenly become an internet sensation off the back of that?
2: Well, if I did, I, 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 um, I, I was asked very late uh, the evening before uh, to go on uh, and introduce the Prime Minister. So, I mean, we, we knocked together the outline of a speech, um, and, um, I just went on and did what I've done, as you know, Matt, for, uh, for years, both in the courts and, uh, and in political speeches. And, uh, I didn't expect any such reaction. Uh, it was slightly bewildering. Um, the role of the attorney general is usually quite a, um, how shall I put it? It's usually a backroom role. Um, but, um... Uh, you know, there were compensations, I suppose, but generally speaking, I'm happy to work in the background.
1: So, just explain then the, the role of Attorney General. What, when you know, most people probably have a half decent idea as what the education sector might do or the health sector might do, but as a as a cabinet job, uh, what does the what does the Attorney General actually do?
2: Well, his role is pretty central to almost every aspect of the government because it is to ensure that the government in its policy making, in its uh, individual decisions, complies with the law. Um, his role is to uphold the rule of law, to ensure that uh, the government operates within its uh, parameters. Of course, there's uh, room for disagreement as to what exactly the law is. Otherwise, there'd be no need for lawyers at all. And, and therefore, you have to use a great deal of judgment. You have to work out whether you think that there is a respectable argument for what the government is doing and that it's conscientiously and properly within the, the, the law as it applies at the time. And, and, and it's important that such a person should be in the cabinet because otherwise the risk is that these issues are not drawn to one's political colleagues' attention at a stage where it can uh, make, affect the, the policy or the decision.
1: In the role, are you more lawyer or politician? Uh, because obviously, you've got two conflicting roles in that you're trying to uphold the law, while also, you know, you're a team player, you're a conservative, you know, politics matters as well.
2: Yeah, no, I think my answer to that, Matt, is that you have to be both. The whole uh, usefulness of the Attorney General is that he should combine or she should combine political awareness. Uh, the sense to one's colleagues in the cabinet that you're on the same side, that you're batting for the same team, um, and that you are keen to see the success of the government. But at the same time, what you can't compromise is your legal judgment. Because frankly, just in the same way as in private practice, so in government, it's no use a lawyer telling his client something that is a wholly unreasonable interpretation of the law, because it will simply lead to legal challenge later and failure. So you have to be independent and objective in your advice on the law, while attempting to advance the government's political objectives.
1: So it strikes me there were two big moments during your time as Attorney General uh, that sort of became where politics and the law came crashing up against each other. The first was in spring last year when uh, your legal advice about Theresa May's deal was seen as crucial to get Tory MPs to back it. And then the second was when Boris Johnson finally prorogued Parliament last summer. In your advice to Theresa May, you, it, and it was long-awaited advice, you admitted the UK could still be trapped in the Irish backstop indefinitely against its wheel. And on the back of that, Theresa May's deal was then voted down. Do you, do you regret not being more helpful to the Prime Minister?
2: <laughs> um, I mean, I didn't admit that it could still involve uh, a very long period of, of detention inside the backstop. I advised uh, <laughs> that it could. And I don't think there's any serious lawyer who would have contemplated advising any differently. Um, I, look, I was never placed under any pressure whatsoever in that advice. Um, the uh, system worked exactly as it should work, which is that the Attorney General was free um, from both um, uh, subliminal moral pressure and official and formal pressure. No such pressures were applied to me to advise as he thought fit. In this case, I mean, it, you can imagine that uh, I had um, made clear uh, throughout the period of consideration that. Um, that advice was likely to follow, so it couldn't have come as any surprise. Were you personally conflicted? Did you want the
1: deal to go through, but you had to deliver this bad news? Or, or as a, because you supported Brexit, were you, were you sort of happy that the deal was going to fall on the basis that you, you basically didn't think the deal was very good?
2: Well, neither, really. I mean, when, I, when one is advising as a lawyer... One's personal preferences and uh, private inclinations are wholly irrelevant. Um, I mean, it's, I genuinely did not consider uh, that. It never entered my head. What entered my head was expressing a, an accurate and honest balance um, in the advice that I gave. But the ultimate conclusion, uh, which was the relevant one and for which people were looking, was unavoidable. The, the fact is that, um, that it did not mean the changes that had been affected, while marginally useful, that we could have exited the backstop um, other than by a subsequent agreement over which the European Union obviously possessed a veto. Um, Now, you asked what my private inclinations were. Um, I simply wanted to achieve uh, the uh, the outcome that the British people had voted for in 2016. Uh, At that time, it was unclear to me that that would happen because the forces ranged against the fulfilment of that uh, expression of will by the British people were very powerful. There was a minority government, and I did fear that... It was even conceivable that we would not ultimately leave the European Union. So my feeling was that um, supporting the deal, supporting the um, uh, arrangements that had been put in place was a rational decision to take, weighing up the equation of risks at the time. I'm afraid that sounds very loyally, but what it comes down to is I backed the deal because I feared we wouldn't get out at all. Not because I thought it was a particularly good one, as I said at the time.
1: Uh, Do you prefer the deal that Boris Johnson's got since? If you like what you're hearing, you can listen to the whole of my Times Radio show. Either listen back on the Times Radio app, or you can listen live Monday to Thursday, 10 till 1. We'll have more on the episode after this.
2: Ready to pop the question?
0: This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.
2: Well, I have to say that um, I think the, the, the deal that had been negotiated um, could have been um, acceptable because I felt that it wasn't practically speaking, the trap people feared. Uh, I think this deal is probably better. Um, I feel that um, it will allow um, much greater flexibility for this country to exploit what are the opportunities that Brexit brings. I am cons- concerned about certain of its aspects, and those are well reported. The operation of the protocol is going to be crucial. That is, the Northern Irish protocol is going to be crucial. Uh, and uh, I know the government is aware of those challenges.
1: What, in practical terms, for listeners, are you concerned about with the protocol, and, and what difference that would make to whether or not we really do have Brexit?
2: I don't think, I, I don't think I'm worried about not having Brexit. I think that that is. Um, I think the government is uh, exactly on the right lines in its current negotiations. I don't uh, detect from the distance I'm now at. Uh, anything with which I would fundamentally disagree. I think the concern I have is the practical operation of the protocol uh, and what impediments it will or will not bring to Northern Ireland playing a full role in the United Kingdom. I think that is the concern which we must be focused on and all will depend upon the discussions that happen inside the administrative committee of the protocol.
1: I'm sure you've seen that uh, last week there was this letter that Liz Truss, the International Trade Secretary, had written to Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, warning Mm. that UK ports won't be ready to carry out import checks on time. There was a risk of smuggling. The system for applying tariffs in Northern Ireland would not be ready either. She said it would also put the UK government at risk of legal challenge at the World Trade Organisation. Is she
2: right, do you think? Well, I haven't seen the letter, Matt. And even though I'm out of government, I'm not that keen on commenting on colleagues' leaked letters. I've had more than my share of rueful experience (laughs) of leaks. Um, uh, Frankly, the government was porous uh, during the period in which I was the Attorney General. Um, So I'm not keen on it. What I would say is that I've no doubt that these concerns are the subject of live and active consideration in the government because there are legal issues that uh, inevitably apply to these kinds of very complex border and customs questions. Um, I think the concern that I would focus upon is really how the protocol is going to be interpreted when it comes to the application of tariffs. Um, I think that the, the, the deal that was worked out is, in its potential, a, a very favourable one that the Prime Minister secured, but I think there's still quite a lot of battles to be fought in ensuring that the interpretation that's adopted as to which goods are, have which tariffs applied to them uh, is one that favours the maximum unity between Northern Ireland and the rest of the United Kingdom. Do you worry
1: that the that Northern Ireland, in particular, has been neglected uh, in this deal? Uh, can the you know Conservatives are the Conservative and Unionist party, and yet in a it, it can seem to some as if the in, in, the, the price of getting a, a a better deal overall for the UK has been to sort of slightly sell the Nor- Northern Ireland down the river.
2: Well, I I can't resist pointing out that had um, the, the uh, Unionists, some of whom are my friends and for whom I have a considerable and great respect. Um, Had had they voted for (laughs) the arrangements that had been put in place by the government in 2019, uh, that situation would not have arisen because um, the same rules, although differently enforced, would have applied to all parts of the United Kingdom. Um, But they didn't. And what subsequently has happened is that Northern Ireland will occupy a different uh, a set of arrangements from the rest of the United Kingdom. And I think it's incumbent upon the government, as it is on all of us, to ensure that those differences um, are as smooth and invisible as they can possibly be. But let's be clear too. Um, Northern Ireland is ex- is in a unique situation. It's the only land border that we share with the European Union. It depends considerably upon those fluent passing across borders between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland. Uh, And so inevitably, some sort of exceptional arrangement was going to have to be made. I think it's just a question of how it's practically operated. Uh,
1: Given that you were a a supporter of uh, Brexit from the beginning, do you worry, given how the last... Or is it now four years have played out and all the to and froing and technicalities and arguments and everything. Is it still a good idea? Has it been a sort of a, a, an enormous use of political capital, actual capital, you know, phenomenal amounts of money being spent? We were reading the papers today about the, the increased cost on business for uh, goods flowing backwards and forwards between Britain and the EU. Do you still think that actually leaving the EU is worth it and a good idea?
2: Yes, I do. Um, I do very much. And I'll tell you why, because I don't think you can see the whole Brexit phenomenon as in some way um, an adventitious, extraneous event that has somehow been uh, exploded out of nowhere. It's the process of a long gestation within the national consciousness of a profound unease um, many people not, I completely accept, are not uneasy by it. But the the, the the arrangements by which the United Kingdom played a role in the European Union simply chafed upon the consciousness of a large portion of the British people. Now, you that is an unhealthy situation for this country ever to have been in. And you cannot stop what happened in 2016, I firmly believe, was a very deep, rooted, seismic convulsion within the people of this country and, and a demand for change. And that change included the system of governance under which they had then been governed. And unless politicians respond sensitively to those kinds of fundamental changes, as Kennedy once said that um, if you prevent peaceful revolution what you get is something worse we have to be the architects of change the midwives of that change and that is why the government is placing such stress now upon trying to reach into the deepest parts of the government to effect that kind of change so I, i just don't think you could historically avoid it i think that that this was a, an event that had long been gestated and uh, it, it needs to be uh, fulfilled.
1: Let's take us back then, Geoffrey Cox. When you were uh, Attorney General last summer, um, obviously the other big controversy on your watch was when uh, uh, Boris Johnson took the decision to prorogue Parliament for five weeks, basically uh, l- suspending Parliament for five weeks, apparently in the hope that that would stop uh, opponents of Brexit using all sort of parliamentary chicanery to try and stop Brexit happening at all and prevent uh, leaving with, with no deal. At that point,
2: what did you advise Boris Johnson to do? Well, Matt, I'm, I, 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 it's very difficult for me, um, even though I'm no longer Attorney General, to to uh, comment on what I advised a Prime Minister, because as you will understand, um, even though I'm um, not attorney, I'm still bound by the convention which is the parallel to that between client and lawyer, uh, that such advice is not um, is not made public. Um, what I can say is that um, I took the view, as I said in the House afterwards, and the government took the view, that its actions in uh, uh, requesting a prorogation uh, from Her Majesty were perfectly, tenably, and arguably lawful, by which I mean... That no lawyer can be absolutely sure what a court will say but that there were powerful uh, range of reasons why it was a perfectly lawful course for the government to take is borne out by the fact that the lord chief justice and the master of the rolls and the president of the queen's bench division agreed entirely with the government that this was not a matter that was regulated by the courts and the law but by political conventions and political factors. Now, that was the view I took. Um, plainly, there were always going to be litigation risks. And you can probably imagine that as a, a an experienced lawyer, I certainly didn't leave out the prospect that uh, courts might disagree with this position. But that was the position that the government took. And I still think that it was a perfectly legitimate one for it to do. Of course, the Supreme Court obviously took a different view
1: ruled the propagation was unlawful uh, so the prime minister had effectively misled the queen and it led some pretty explosive scenes in the house of commons uh, the next day let's take a listen to what uh you uh, said from the dispatch box the next day well we've just got the clip coming now there
2: we go this parliament is a dead parliament. Yes. It should no longer sit. It has no moral right to sit on these green benches. This Parliament is
1: a disgrace. I mean you didn't hold back there, did you Jeffrey?
2: No, I was angry.
1: <laughs> um, <laughs> I think I mean, that I came was... across. <laughs>
2: Yeah, I mean, I was, I was angry because I took the view that Parliament had promised to the British people that it would fulfil the decision the British people took in 2016. But it was by then apparent that the game of many was to frustrate and prevent the outcome of that referendum. As simple as that. Now, I don't deny for a moment that those who did so and who worked to that end, including the current leader of the opposition determined and bent, as I'm convinced they were, to frustrate and prevent it, to seek a situation where uh, the British people would be deterred from going ahead with their decision, I I was angry because they'd promised something different. Every single one of them had promised, uh, bar a very few, uh, had promised that they would honour that outcome. That, to me, seemed wrong. Uh, It seemed constitutionally wrong that if they wouldn't let the government get its policy through, that they would not refer the matter to the British people. And at that stage, they were also refusing to do that. So, you know, there was, um, there was a perfectly reasonable grounds for me being angry, <laughs> though perhaps I regret losing my temper in that way in the House. But I don't regret this, the, the sentiments that I expressed at the time, which found a resonance, I think, in the country.
1: Uh, you touched on there the the interplay between uh, judges and uh, the lawmakers uh, there's been a lot of talk the government has promised to set up a constitution democracy and rights commission to consider that relationship between government parliament and the courts what what do you what is the problem as you see it that needs addressing from that and what do you hope will come out of that uh, that
2: review Well, let me pick you up just on one thing you said earlier, Matt, before I forget. You said that the Supreme Court had effectively suggested the Prime Minister had misled the Queen. That is wholly wrong. The Supreme Court never suggested anything of that kind. Um, The fact of the matter is that the Prime Minister acted on perfectly legitimate legal advice, um, and that legal advice was agreed with by the uh, three very senior judges who decided the question at first instance, including the Lord Chief Justice of England and Wales. So, I don't, I don't think for a moment that it can seriously be said um, that uh, uh, it can be certainly said if it's political propaganda. But it cannot accurately and fairly be said that the Prime Minister misled the Queen. The Prime Minister acted in perfect good faith, as did the government in considering that its actions were lawful now you ask me what about what can this commission achieve well i do think and i've long thought i wrote an essay about it over 10 years ago that there is a prevailing approach within the legal orthodoxy if you like within the courts uh, that you could loosely describe and authors often do as liberal constitutionalism what that means in effect is that the judges Um, are willing to see themselves as as, um, uh, an independent actor within the Constitution, uh, expanding the range of um, decisions that fall to be judicial decisions taken in courts rather than political. Now, I think that, to some extent, that's perfectly reasonable, but I do think there is a widespread sense that it may be going too far and it would benefit from an analytical look to see whether or not that is so, and if so, to take appropriate action. But I've long said that this isn't something that can be rushed into. It needs to be done very carefully in a very measured way. Um, And what can't be compromised is the independence of the judiciary and its ability to hold the government to account where it's legitimate to do so. Uh, can I
1: just uh, finally ask you about uh, William Hagan last week? Uh, he he discussed the risk of having overpowerful advisors and an underpowered cabinet, as he described it. Do you think that Dominic Cummings is overpowerful and Boris Johnson's got an underpowered cabinet?
2: No, I don't think that. I, I, I've worked together with, uh, with the Prime Minister's uh, Chief of Staff and I find him to be uh, an exceptionally talented and able man. And frankly, um, the, the, what I said earlier about the challenge, the mission, that the decision in 2016 of the British people um, needs to have some revolutionary and radical approach to fulfil it. We need to think. Fundamentally differently about the future of this country and about how we're to organise ourselves to face that future. So, I, I, I am—I um, I certainly don't think for a moment that um, that the government is is um, is somehow falling prey to overpowerful advisors. And uh, I, I do think that it's important that there should be voices able to question, challenge, to oppose the. The current view, much as Michael Gove said recently, it's important that you don't have group things, So it is important to have independent voices. But I have no reason to believe that my colleagues in the cabinet are not that. And at the moment, um, you know, I think we must give the government the benefit of the doubt. Oh, very good. Well, while we've it's been
1: uh, it's been great to be While while we've been talking, we've had lots of uh, texts and messages and tweets of people saying it's lovely to hear Darth Vader on the radio, Mufasa from <laughs> the Lion King. Uh, l- lots of people. Fa- um, one person's tweeted saying, uh, uh, "Stephen George is saying this like a warm bath in my ears." I disagree with most of his words, but don't they sound just lovely? Have you been surprised by the
2: the interest and, and affection for your your deep voice? Well, look, I'm incredibly grateful for all those <laughs> who are polite. Uh, some are not. Um, and uh, I, I'm touched and grateful by the many expressions of goodwill I've had uh, over the months. Um, and uh, we'll see if we can contrive ways, Matt, of giving them uh, as much pleasure again. But uh, I haven't, uh, I, yes, I mean, I've been surprised. But um, as long as it's kindly and politely expressed, I'm delighted.
1: Well, we, uh, we've we been joking over the last few weeks because of pantomimes being cancelled because of coronavirus uh, that we're going to do our own panto at Christmas and it, it feels like you need to have a role in that. So we look forward to working
2: with you back. I, I will be delighted.
1: That's all we've got time for on this episode. To listen to the whole Times Radio show, just go to the Times Radio app and click listen again. To make sure you don't miss future episodes of the podcast. Subscribe on Apple, Acast, Spotify or wherever you listen. And to read more about what we've been talking about on the podcast, go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash times radio to subscribe. But for now, for me, Matt Cholly, it's goodbye.
0: This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.